This dopey, dopey podcast is coming in your ear with heroin academy, sobriety, and beer. Dave and that other guy, you know, the hot one, everybody wants to fuck. Just thought I'd throw in a visual for the listeners. Now you know. Good luck. So pull up a chair, start the car, let's get on the road, hey, let's go. The Dopey Podcast is starting up, welcome to the show. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California, in Silver Lake, and somewhere in Western Los Angeles. They were founded by Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their dream to treat addiction and alcoholism with compassion and connection instead of control. The team has decades of experience in treating severe mental illness and other co-occurring mental health disorders. They make sure that your detox is as comfortable as possible, which is a great claim. It's a great ambition to make a detox as comfortable as possible. I wouldn't say all these good things about Oro if I didn't know them to be true. We've had a bunch of people from the dopey universe, the doposphere, if you will, go to Oro. They all say great things. If you're fucked and you're willing to go to sunny Southern California to get some help and you want amenities like surfing, equine therapy, sound bath, meditation, and of course the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, then I cannot suggest going to Oro enough. Check them out at ororecovery.com. This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? Well, the quick answer is it's an app, but it's so much more. Sober Buddy is a community. It is a world of Zooms, of challenges of sober tracking, but most importantly, it is a tool that connects you with other addicts and other alcoholics on the journey to stay sober. I think they do 10 Zooms a week. I do one of them, 
9 in the morning on Wednesday. They offer a free trial. So if you're nervous, you just sort of sign up and give it a shot. I know a bunch of people who are in the Your Sober Buddy community, and it's pretty amazing. The app also has a sort of social media component, which is all about recovery, addiction, some dumb shit, and a lot of support. Once again, they're available at the App Store and the Google Play Store and at YourSoberBuddy.com. All right, this episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult, and our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or a loved one, Soberlink is the spot. Soberlink is a high-tech, portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify your identity. It has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used and sends results directly to your specified contacts. So there's no requesting or questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com slash dopey. Again, 50 bucks off the promo code by visiting www.soberlink.com slash dopey. We're going to get to the show in a second, but I want to tell you guys about a, a little recovery podcast that I love called Recovery in the Middle Ages, all about two middle-aged suburban dads and their pursuit of life, love, and recovery. Listen as they discuss current topics of interest to the recovery community, including 12-step, smart recovery, the newest medical research, and talk about their daily struggle to maintain their recovery and anonymity in the world of soccer moms and PTA meetings, if the neighbors only knew. Find Recovery in the Middle Ages where you find all of your podcasts or at middleagesrecovery.com. That is middleagesrecovery.com. Now, enough with the ads. Here's the fucking show. Actually, real quick, buy Dopey Gear at dopeypodcast.com. Go to Patreon. Support the cause. There's good shit on there. Support SRO Prince. Always a Hoot makes great Grateful Dead clothes. Alwaysahoot.com. Now, enough of the ads. Here's the fucking show. Hello, uh, welcome to Dopey. This is before the show. We ha- we recorded a show. I'm putting a show together, and uh, I'm sure a lot of you guys know this, but yesterday David Crosby died. Today is Friday, January twentieth. Uh, yesterday David Crosby died. I was with my little daughter Susan in the supermarket, and my friend Pete, who's an avid Dopey listener in Hawaii, texted me that Crosby had died. And I said, fuck out loud. And I said, fuck for a lot of reasons. I I always coveted David Crosby as a dopey guest. I thought we might get him when his movie, Remember My Name, came out. We got that documentarian, A.J. Eaton. And um, I tried so hard to get him on and it never happened. But, you know, I said, fuck also because I love David Crosby and I'm sad he's gone. 
I love all those guys from the 60s, and they are dying off. David Crosby was 81. He was a prodigious drug addict. He was in some kind of recovery. I heard him talk a lot about it, and I always love to hear him talk. I loved his music. I loved The Birds. I loved Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And I just got a kick out of him. And he had some of the greatest dopey stories ever. And I just want to, you know, say rest in peace, David Crosby. You are a first ballot dopey Hall of Fame. You were probably top five coveted dopey guests. He blocked me on Twitter, which was such an honor for me. Uh, Chris was still alive, and uh, Crosby would respond to people's Twitters, tweets. So I would tweet at him, yo, Cros, who's a worst junkie? You or John Phillips? Or, hey, Cros, who is the worst crackhead? You or Rick James or Sly Stone? Or how bad of a junkie was James Taylor, actually? And I think I would also say, come on the show, come on the show, until he blocked me. And I was kind of honored he blocked me. Because it because a message pops up that says you have been blocked by David Crosby. But I was also sad because I knew I would never get to actually communicate with him. It's also sad just because this generation of people are dying. And it kind of makes me feel a little bit more alone in a weird way. You know Paul McCartney's gonna die soon. Mick Jagger, fucking Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, Bob Dylan. These are people that took a lot of space in my imagination and in my brain and in my ears. I spent so many hours listening to all these guys. So they're going to go. We're all going to go. You know, that's life. You know, to everything, turn, turn, turn. Rest in peace, David Crosby. Wish we could have had you on the show. And now, everybody, here's the fucking show. Welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and I'm at my father's apartment. Some people call him Ray. I used to call him the godfather of the G folk era, which he didn't like. I used to make fun of him for showering with his clothes on and other such things. His name is Ray Brown. Welcome back to the show. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Uh, Ray Brown is partially disfigured. Ray, (laughs) tell them what happened. I've done a skin cancer peel on my face so it's removed all the skin cancer from my face they've taken my face off yeah they took my face off did you ever see face off i've seen the trailer i think oh my god i just want to say this to the dopey nation uh if you are in in early recovery or even better if you're using if anyone out there is using and they're planning on kicking get face off ready for the <laughs> kick there is no, no they go together there's just no better okay i'm going to give you my top five movies to kick to number five is uh spike lee's malcolm x i don't know why i watched it a hundred times kicking uh number two uh and this is off the top of my head what's that guy uh the surfer guy who's very handsome matthew mcconaughey's uh, a time to kill with Samuel L. Jackson. This is a genre I never knew existed. What? Movies Detox to movies? kick by. Yeah, yes. these are movies to kick to. So first was um, Malcolm X yeah. is number number yeah. five. Yeah. 
A Time to Kill is number four. Number three, I've already run out of movies to kick to. Face Off. No, num- Face Off is going to be... Okay, number three is Face Off. Uh, Nicolas Cage and uh, John Travolta. They remove their faces. Well, the premise for the movie is that John Travolta is a cop. They switch their faces. And Nicolas Cage is a super criminal. And somebody else is trying to blow up a stadium full of people. And they need to get the access code to stop the device. (laughs) But there's no way they're going to be able to get the access code. So they need to be someone that the criminal trusts. Meanwhile, Nicolas Cage, who's a super villain, is in a coma. So they cut his face off and put it on John Travolta <laughs> and put John Travolta's face in a in a cryogenic storage. But and then John Travolta get, saves the the city as Nicolas Cage. But of course, Nicolas Cage, when he's in a coma, when they cut his face off, it wakes him up. Because why wouldn't it if he's in a coma? Didn't you talk about me doing something like this one time? What's that? Like me trading a face with somebody? That's possible. <laughs> I'm so, obsessed with So what's number two? I don't. I wanted to give up these Naked movies. Gun 33 and a third. I never saw the Naked Gun 33 and a third. And no? I, I'm not... I, They're trying I, to blow up a stadium. I didn't watch any Naked Gun movies when I was kicking. I can't think of any other movies that I... Uh, a Murder of Crows with uh, Cuba Gooding the third. Not a great movie, but I watched it a bunch when I was kicking... Um, fucking, what's a good kicking movie? I don't know. I don't know. Just those movies are movies I watched in detox, and they had like the Wait, VHS. They, they have them at the yes. rehab, yeah, like VHS. Tapes? They have the VHSs, <laughs> yes. And uh, and me and Ray were just sitting down, and I was looking through dopey emails and voicemails, and we stumbled upon just a, an incredible the, dopey, the greatest dopey voicemail of all time. Well, he wrote a little note. So he says, hey, Dave, long time, first time here. Love Dopey so fucking much. It's consistently the highlight of my Saturday. Just figured I'd share one of my best Dopey stories with you. The grape story. It's gay and got some butt stuff involved right up your alley. It's great that you're here for this too, Ray. Well, I didn't know it was gay until like a minute in. Yeah, I didn't know either. I didn't know any of it. I didn't read this. I just hit play. It yeah. was a, sep- a separate email that had the, yeah. the actual voicemail attached. I've attached the voice memo. Play it on air or don't. Just had to share it with you. Much love, dude. You're doing amazing work. Crazy sex slash meth addict here in Colorado. Tyler. P.S. January 15th is my 90 days. I'm so happy to be in recovery. My days using were, were fun at times, but my but recovery is rewarding on the daily. That's nice. Congratulations, Tyler. Congratulations. What do you say, Ray? You say congratulations? Yep. All right. So here's Tyler's uh, Grapes of uh, Wrath story. Hold on. Hey, Dave. Uh, Tyler here, uh, all the way from Colorado. Um, I uh, am listening to Dopey right now. Figured I'd take three minutes or less to give you a voice memo. Let's see if I can do this in three minutes or less. First of all, Dave, I fucking love Dopey. It's amazing. Like, I I feel like the way you approach shame with humor and experiences and stories, it's just so healing and it's done a lot for me. Um, The title of my story for you today is Fifty Shades of Grapes. See what I did there? It's a very sexy story. Um, And here it goes. This is from probably November of 2017. I was living in Las Vegas 
Um, I lived in Las Vegas for three months. That shit ran me ragged, and I couldn't hang with the the big dogs in Vegas. Um, and but I do have a really great story. Um, Fifty Shades of Grapes. Here it goes. Um, so I was on one of my famous five day benders. I found this guy on uh, about day three, and I walk into his house. It's this big ass house really big house, uh, endless amounts of rooms, endless amounts of men, but I was just there for this one specific guy. And so we were in his bedroom, um, using meth and GHB, both of which he had were very good, very quality. Um, and, uh, (laughs) so we are having sex, like mad sex for about, I don't know, a day. And then after a day goes by, it's like day four for me. Right. And so he's like, are you hungry? And I'm like, yeah, dude, let's let's replenish ourselves. What do you got to eat? And he's like, oh, you know, I got some grapes. So he runs and he grabs the grapes. He comes back with a big-ass bowl of green grapes um, and a pitcher of water, a couple of glasses. And so we are snacking. We are drinking water, just enjoying ourselves and each other's company. Um, and then all of a sudden he's like, hey, dude, can I put a grape in your ass? So I'm like, yeah, dude. go for it. I'm like, what the fuck? It'll be fun though. I've never had a grape in my ass. And so he goes to put the first one in there. And like, I think he's just going to like halfway put it in, not kind of put it in all the way. Um, but I don't know if you've ever been to the bank in the drive through, but you know, when you put your money in the envelope and you put it into the canister to take it into the bank, it just kind of sucks it right up. Right. And it shoots it right over into the bank. Well, my ass did this to that grape, just sucked it right up. Um, and so I feel the, um, pressure at which the grape was sucked into my ass. And I'm like, how far up did that go? And I'm starting to freak out. I'm like, dude, have you ever done this to anyone before? And he's like, (laughs) he was like, no, dude, no one's ever said yes. And I'm like, all right, uncharted territory. Just kind of go with it. It can't be that bad. It's just a grape in your ass. So that one grape leads to two. And that those two grapes lead to five. So I end up with a total of five green grapes in my ass. And I'm like, all right, dude, I have got to get these out. Like, I'm starting to freak out. I don't know if they're going to get lost up in my intestines or whatever. And so I'm like, dude, uh, fun's over. I need to get these grapes out. And uh, I was a really good gay hoe back in the day. So I knew I was squeaky clean down there. And the only thing coming out of my ass was these grapes. And so he's like, can I watch you get them out? (laughs) And I'm like, dude, you're so fucking weird. But I was on hella meth and GHB. And so I'm like, all right, dude, you can watch. And so we go into his bathroom and I straddle the toilet in like this reverse cowgirl position so that I'm facing the wall and he's got a good view. And literally like these grapes just shoot out like BBs fully intact. And uh, I was like, pew, 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 pew. And uh, yeah. So, um, that is my 50 shades of grapes story. Um, and one person asked me once, what's the weirdest thing you've ever had in your ass? And, and, and that's my answer is five grapes. So yeah, Dave, uh, (laughs) play this in on air. Don't play it on air. I just wanted you to know my 50 shades of grapes story. So, um, that's it for me, Dave. You have a great day. Did he say you have a grape day? I was going to ask you the same thing. I think he did. Listen, there, there's been we've had a few recent dopey voicemails that are just above and beyond the, the Call of Duty and Tyler. I just want to thank you for sending in that story. And I think my favorite part was the pew pew pew. 
<laughs> shooting grapes out of your butt. Ray, what's the strangest thing you've put in your butt? Um, a dick. <laughs> <laughs> never, never grapes? No. And how often are anal stories just the greatest stories? They're always the greatest. <laughs> What about that Richard Gere gerbil story? What, what do you, I think you'd probably know if that was a true story or not. Well, how could that be true? Like, you can't put a gerbil... First of all, the gerbil would probably die immediately or, like, hurt you. You know, It, it would, would definitely it would hurt, hurt you. you. No. I, how cavernous can an asshole be? I never understood how that story had legs, but it's still going, like, 40 years later. Maybe it's a tiny gerbil. It always reminds me of the Rod Stewart cum story. What's that? That... Rod Stewart collapsed on stage. They took him to the emergency room. They pumped his stomach, and they found, in every story it's different, it was like 30 gallons of cum. <laughs> <laughs> that was like in my middle school. <laughs> That's how you know he's gay, because yes. his stomach is full of cum. <laughs> wow. Or sometimes it's like this, the semen of 30 different men. Like, how, did, how can you tell? I wonder who like crafts that story. Either of those stories. And you know, and it's like you can talk to somebody on the other side of the country and they heard the same story. Slightly different. And the uh, other one is um do you remember you would it was a come come chew it was like a candy that when you chewed on it it squirted out and that was their theory that that was cum inside of the candy. I don't know what that is. <laughs> I know I think I oh I think I know what you're talking. It was that fresh the fresh gum. Yes, yes. Yeah, that was... What happened to that? I gum? don't know. Do you think it was cum? <laughs> no. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, it's funny, Ray. I, I don't know if you remember cum this. Cum gum, that's what they called it. No, it was called... I think it was called freshen up. Right, and but it, we call it cum gum. It, it, it's crazy. I think... You know what the thing is, the, the craziest thing, is that when you're young, you think everything will last forever. Yeah. And when you're, you know, 10 and freshen up is sitting on the, the rack at the candy store... You assume it will always be there. It won't. And it, it just won't. And there are so many things that, like, uh, you know, tapes. You think tapes are always going to be there and they're gone. And CDs went really quickly. Yeah. C CDs weren't around that and long. And you're 14 years younger than me. Like, you'll see it coming. Like, now I'm at the age where, like, things that I experienced in my lifetime are now, like, way from the distant you know, past. I'm telling you, man, I'm imagining chewing a piece of fresh enough gum and it's, <laughs> I miss it. Like that's a real refreshing burst to come in that gum. <laughs> it's just awesome. We had the great pleasure and honor to have Dr. Drew back on the show. And I'm just so into in-person interviews. And I, I, I found out Dr. Dre, Dr. Dre, Dr. Drew, <laughs> Dr. Dre's cousin, was in town, and he actually lives right next to my dad's house. We're looking at his apartment right now. And I go over there, and I don't remember which building is his. Yeah. So, and we had Katz's caters some shit over <laughs> too. So I went into one of the buildings, and I went, "Excuse me, uh, do the Pinskys live here?" And he said, uh, "We're not at liberty to divulge that information." Right. And I said, "Oh well, I I'm going over there, and the, the Susan." sent me this uh, address, and he said, oh, that's the other side of the building. And uh, he pointed me up a stairway, and I went up the stairway, and it's one of these, and it was around, it was just after Christmas time, and it was very opulent, and there's beautiful Christmas trees and fireplaces and money and whatever. Piles of money. Yeah, there's money lying around. <laughs> so I walk through the lobby, and the doorman, like, runs up to me, because, like, whatever, and he's like, oh, can I help you? And I said, yes, I'm here to see the Pinskys. And he says, are you Dopey Dave? <laughs> are you? 
And I said, I said, I said, that's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> no, I am not. My my intern Claire says that I should stop telling stories where people call me Dopey Dave. It, it just and I don't more. like it because it just begets more of it. Yeah. But it was just so funny. Begets. You know, it beget- I wonder if he knows that. Do you think he knows that begets sounds like begets? He must. That's he must. his name. He must know it. And it, shout out begets. Anyway, I have to say it makes it still makes me feel good about the show that Dr. Drew still wants to come on. Yeah. You know, it, it seems to mean something. It's credibility. It's credibility, it's right? Mainstream. It also reminds me of our show's history. Yeah. Of, of and, and he didn't do it once. He came back. He's done it a lot. Yeah. And he had me on his show. Yeah. And uh, he's a good guy. He's a fucking mensch, as they say. Yep. Now, we're going to play the Dr. Drew interview in a second. But first... And he he was on the show when you didn't have a huge audience, right? Yeah. He was he was the reason that we bought the new gear for the show. Yeah. Uh, and me and Chris... Like at the old apartment. Yeah, but we bought the gear literally the day before we went up wow. to interview him on the Upper West Side. He hadn't even gotten this apartment. He yeah. lived on the Upper West Side, and we went with Chris. And I remember uh, me and Chris walking into the lobby of the building and asking to see Dr. Drew. And I remember in the lobby there were all these mirrors, and, and Chris Chris was nervous, yeah. and it was, it was cool. And then afterwards, me and Chris went out to a, a Chinese-Spanish restaurant. You remember how they used to have that Chinese-Spanish yeah, yeah, restaurant? Yeah, Latina. Yeah, they had one on your block. La Nueva Rampa. That place was good. And they had a place... Not, there, was, not, there, there was a bunch in my neighborhood, but right underneath me was La Nueva Rampa. There was a spot on 20th Street that was so good, right? Because um, they would have plantains and they'd have Chinese food yeah. and it would be amazing. And I remember I went there with, with Todd. I went there with Todd, and Todd and like, it was cheap. Todd was like, "I'm not eating here. This place is disgusting." And I was like, "Dude, the food is so good." He's like, "Fine." And we were probably tripping or yeah. something. They, they weren't the like fanciest of restaurants. No, but we sit down, and a cockroach oh walks my. on the table, and I'm just like, "Fuck!" Like we can never come here again. Well, I lived above La Nueva Rampa, and I could see what they did with the food in the backyard. I never ate there. All right. Well, there you go. But uh, so before we get into the Dr. Drew interview, I want to direct all dopey listeners to Patreon. Uh, Ray and I just recorded a new Raytreon slash Hatreon. Right. By by accident. By accident. We accidentally recorded a a new episode. And honestly, Patreon is full of a lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff in Patreon. There's videos. There's access to Zooms. I did a Zoom this morning. There's things I won't say on this channel and I will say on Patreon. Is that true? Totally. Like what? Like things I'm not going to say. You know what you were supposed to say when we just played the grave thing? I know. You were supposed to say it, but you said you had sex with a dwarf when you were on meth. (laughs) So say it, right? Well, you just said You said you were going to say it, so say it. I said, have you ever had sex on crystal meth? And you said, no. No, I only had sex alone on crystal meth. (laughs) Vigorously. (laughs) Right. For a long time. For for nights on end. So, Ray, tell us. I was on crystal meth. I had sex with a midget. Who was this, Who this knows? dwarven man? Who knows? Where did he come from? Seventh Avenue. Did was he a a, a hustler? No. A trick? No. <laughs> Do dwarf tricks get more money or less money, he Ray was Brown? Not. <laughs> they get no money. No money? No. What did you give him? A hearty handshake? 
You gave him the dick in the ass and you showed him the door? <laughs> yes. Did he, did he get any meth? No. No meth for the dwarf? No. Are you sure? I'm sure, yes. When was this? Long time ago. What do you remember from... Was it Peter Dinklage? <laughs> no, it was not. What do you remember of the dwarven experience? I, I just remember like crystal meth makes you crazy and I, it suddenly seemed very sexy to have sex with this man. Was his... Was his Manhood dwarven or no, regular size? Normal. Yeah, regular. Did it look gigantic because he was so little? No. You have no recollection. It's a long time ago. What can you recollect? <laughs> I, I, I recollect we, it was a street pickup, and there was, this is back when it was kind of dangerous to be out on the street at 4 a.m., and there was some guys walked by us, and they were like fucking faggots. That's what I remember mainly. And you were high on meth. Yeah. How were you, were you doing the meth? Snorting it. See, meth was so painful to snort. It's yes, it's like snorting Ajax. It just hurts so yeah. bad. We smoked a ton of meth in L.A., and then I remembered, like, I, I was like, I I can use needles for this. Right. <laughs> we don't have to smoke this. And Todd, I have an idea. We snorted it, and Todd uh, smoked it. We had that horrible bubbly meth pipe yeah. that you roll around over the flame. Yeah. Todd fucking loved meth so much. And it made just made us such assholes. And you'll keep putting it over the flame when there's no meth in there. Right, right. And, the, and that fucking bubble gets so hot. It's crazy. Who figured that out? What? Who figured out how to smoke things in those glass pipes? Crackheads. That's when that was invented, I guess, yeah. I don't know. At Dopey Nation, if you guys know the origin of the bubble meth pipe please send and in a do people smoke heroin and fentanyl in those glass pipes no you on only the foil. you only smoke heroin and fentanyl on the foil yeah and yeah dope i don't know why dopey nation if why can't you smoke I'm sure someone out there knows they definitely know <laughs> tell us why where it started and why you can't smoke uh, heroin in a glass bubble pipe and why do people i think it's shocking that people smoke it off the foil at all it just seems like you need to lose smoke even if you're really crazy, you need to lose smoke. You mean you lose some of the heroin? Yeah. I've seen that, and I've thought that same thing. I'm like, look at all that vapor that's going horrible, not, not, not up the straw. Now, Ray, how is your recovery going? Good. Do you put any effort into it these no. days? Nothing? No. Just this? Just this. This doesn't go that far, does no. it? No. <laughs> and I was taking that guy to meetings. That's my last four The dwarf? No. Oh, your friend. My friend. Right. <laughs> all right. Uh, I recommend going back to and, meetings. And I felt... Like really competent and and educated when I was talking to him, I didn't know you were was, like Bill W. and Doctor yeah, Bob like, all wow, rolled into yeah, one. When did I have all this knowledge? That's all. <laughs> and and you recently though, you recently uh, chaired a dopey Zoom. Yes, I did. Did you bring out the recovery, or was it more like dwarf meth sex? No, like? that was because I signed up for it, and then I realized, oh, you have to have a topic, and so my topic was going to meetings or dealing with recovery when you're traveling, which is a, a lot of people are at risk when they're traveling. Or they, that was your topic? That was the topic. And and everybody had an answer. So on the great train ride across North America that's coming up supposedly yes. soon, which yes. I don't believe, um, where will you get your recovery, Ray Brown? Dopey Zoom? Oh, maybe we'll do it on the train. You'll be Zooming on the train or you'll be looking around for people. You'll be hustling We're going to have a meeting in the third car. <laughs> Right. I once chugged a bottle of vodka in an Amtrak bathroom. I I took the bottle with me, and I'm like, I'm going to surreptitiously sip this while we're going. 
and it's it's illegal. You'll get thrown off. And I realized there's no way I can do this secretly. So I went into the bathroom and just like I have to chug this whole thing down. All right. And how did it go? Bad. <laughs> it's like you have you ever like where where where, where were you traveling to? To Florida. Um, was that the pre-crack thing? No, that was a long time ago. Um, you don't drink, but you, if you had this thing where like you think this is going to be enough for the night and you drink all of it and you realize I'm still sober and that was not enough. That that's was, what happened in the bathroom. That's what happened. On, on, and real quick, one more thing yeah. before uh, Dr. Drew, that Dopey Nation Zoom is always happening. You yeah, know, there's 26 of them? 26 meetings a week. They cover everything, including traveling and meetings and dwarf sex and probably a lot of other <laughs> stuff. Uh, the address is 804-300-586. The password is lowercase toodles. So that's two things to remember. Join Patreon, support the show, and go to Dopey Nation Zoom. And here is Dr. Drew Pinsky. I'm in the lavish headquarters of Dr. Drew Pinsky. Why you shake your head at lavish? Yeah, it just feels uncomfortable to hear you say that. There's all, yeah, this is nice though. This is nice. It's I, beautiful. Yeah. There's all sorts of doors opening. I go into the wrong place uh-huh. and I said, is this too, f-? I, you know, I said, whatever. Yeah. And they said, no. And I said, well, do the Pins- Pinskys live here? And they said, we're not at liberty to tell you. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And then he said, well, I think sh- they, they, you are here to see them. So go to this place. And I go to the next guy and he says, are you dopey Dave? <laughs> Which is like the best. the best and the worst at the same time. <laughs> Are you but, dopey Dave? Like the way she goes down there goes, dopey Dave is coming to visit us. <laughs> exactly. And Dr. Uh, Drew, I have to say, you're looking beyond ripped. Oh, is it you. special forces? Special forces sort of got me changing the way I worked out a little bit. A little more running, a little more cardio, a little more intensity, less heavy on the weights. And how, how much work are you putting in right now? Uh, I mean, I, the running adds a little more time. But, you know, go on Hulu and look at episode one of Special Forces, the ultimate test, okay? And you will see me getting my ass handed to me by uh, a bunch of Navy SEALs, essentially, with 15 other folks out there in the desert. And when they approached me to do this, I was like, come on. Like, what are you talking about? Where, where are you taking me, Utah or something? They took us to the Wadi Rum Desert in Jordan. And had you been there before? No, nor do I think I will likely go back ever again, but it was beyond intense anyway. So, so leading up to it, I was feeling like old and like I couldn't, my shoulders hurt all the time. And I was just kind of whiny. And, um, I can't imagine you being whiny. I was, I was, and I had diverticulitis and I was feeling weak all the time. It was really pissing me off. And when they came to me with this, I thought, all right, let me see. Let me. So I started training, like actively training, and I started feeling really great. I thought, oh, this may be what I'm looking for. Maybe this is it. And so I kept going down the road, and lo and behold, I got out there and got my ass handed to me, and you'll see what happens. The page six uh, headline Article, yeah. is Dr. Drew. Mel B. was traumatized by white penises on special forces. I'm so glad you asked about that, because you're going to be the only place where people can get the actual story of what I actually said. Please. So we, it was day one, we'd already been, had our ass kicked completely for hours and hours and hours. And they throw us in these sort of vans, these, these cars. And it was me, Mel B, Danny Amendola from New England Patriots and Scaramucci here, Mooch. And we were in the car and we were like, (gasps) and it was like an hour drive. We were on this hour drive through like no roads, like through sand dunes and things. And then finally roads at the end. And, uh, 
I didn't know Mel B. And we all kind of started getting to know each other and started joking around. And Mel's like, they're going to make us jump out of a helicopter. And we're like, no, they're not. That's this is day one. Why would they why would they say she goes, they're gonna make us do it. We're going to the Red Sea and jumping out of helicopters. And that's where we were going. And we were like arguing with her. And uh there were many delays. You know, we didn't know what was going on because obviously they were getting the helicopter set up and we didn't we didn't know. Many delays, and then we had to pee. And uh, by that point, we're like two hours in this car. We'd been sitting in the car for 45 minutes on a stop. And uh, we'd been joking around. And she goes, oh, my God, I'm going to see all these white penises, meaning me and Mooch. And all these white penises are so traumatizing. And that was what I reported. But and did she see any white penises? No, because we scrambled up a hill and we had our backs to her. But it was just... She was being funny. He was joking around. Well, God bless Page God, Six. God, yeah. And it was Amadola and I that were doing the interview for some press for uh, for Fox. And I didn't realize we were talking to us, Page Six. But that's why that story came up, because it was he and I in the car with her. And we were both remembered that at the same time. And you are no stranger to uh, reality television. Did it remind you of it other did. shows? Yeah. It, well, most reality is not done like this. But Celebrity Rehab is done like this. So there are very few reality shows that just run the cameras and, and the producers have to just step out of the way. They have to get out of there. They have to not, not have any contact with anybody. And this was definitely that. We had no contact with anybody except the staff, the, the Navy SEAL staff. How crazy was this experience for you? I guess you can't tell us too much. I can't much. tell you. I, I will give you the whole details when I can, but all of us feel like it was life-changing, life-altering, the most intense thing we've ever done. And we're all, in spite of many of us ending up in the hospital, Really great we did it. Really like, And we have now 15 of our best, we have dear friends now in each one of these people that we were out there with. Who And who did you get really chummy with? Everybody. It's it's odd. I mean, that's what Susan, Susan came to dinner with a bunch of us the other night. And she goes, you you guys wouldn't even know each other. We're not for this thing. Like we're, you know, a gold medal gymnast, gold medal skier, New England Patriot, Lakers, you know, guard. And uh, I, I don't know what Dwight played in actual. He was position. a center. He was a center. Okay. And, you know, and some actresses, it, just, it was just a ragtag group. And we just hung together. We really hung together as a group and uh, had a great time together. So I'm closest is Danny Amadella. But just because I go to Austin all the time and I see him when I go down there. The coolest thing to me is that even though it shouldn't, it reminds me of rehab because you're yeah. stuck together. Yeah. You make relationships that you normally wouldn't have. Yep. You're with people you normally wouldn't have yes. been with. What about a combined show, celebrity rehab Special forces, where you take well, a bunch of fucking addicts and you put them in the desert of Jordan <laughs> and they have to try to survive. Well, I have discussed that with the, some of the Navy SEALs who I've gotten to know since we've been out. You, you go into this thing. It's like rehab. You go in and then you're cut off, right? And then you come out and then you can kind of relate to people differently, including the staff. And we talked about this. It's, it's a possibility. Well, what's the worst? Because you got flack for celebrity rehab. What's the worst flack you got? That opiate addicts died. Yeah, that which is, is that. shocking. Yes. You know, and, and by the way, all every one of them killed by my peers. Now, I told you this, they, this doctors that were killing the opiate addicts, you know, you know, they were giving them opiates, giving them benzos together, and they died. Boom. Jeff Conway, Mike Starr. Mike Starr, two weeks before he died, he goes, dude, I have a back pain. I go, Mike, whatever you do, do not tell a doctor that. Two weeks later, dead, pills at the bedside, prescribed, as prescribed. Bullshit. What about, people, I hope people understand how bad the opiate crisis was now and how treacherous this all is. And uh, what about like, because people talk shit about taking addicts in general and 
shooting him, right? Putting him on a TV show. Like Danny Bonaducci or something like he did. Remember that? Did he, he was, have a problem with it? He was the original severe alcoholic, steroids and stuff. And he went to a bottom on camera. Yeah. You don't remember that? I remember. Uh, he was on Dopey. Yeah. <laughs> I have a terrible memory. Yeah. He was on Dopey. And I remember. like He, he almost, was called Breaking Bonaducci. Yeah. He almost killed his wife several times, I think. Mm. And, uh, and he was a lunatic. But did you feel like they, people put you in a bad spot because you participated in it at all? Sure. People didn't understand what we were doing. So it, I was approached. I said, I would love to show how we do this and what's happening. Never happened. No way. You can't do this. But we went around a pitch, and I'm like, oh, I'll go pitch it. No, no one will do it. And then VH1 showed interest. And I was like, oh, shit, I, I don't think we can do this. And already the hospital had said no, because I knew that no way a hospital could do it. And I was just, I was kind of hiding. I was hiding from everybody. And a few, like a month or two went by. And uh, VH1 was like, what's going on? Why aren't we doing this? And around that time, Bob Forrest, you don't know Bob, walked into my office, and he sat down in the chair, the normal chair reserved for the patients, and he goes, I am so sick. We were treating a lot of celebrities at the time, not by choice. We just, we're, we were in, you know, we're in Los Angeles. We were very discreet. No one ever heard about who we treated. And uh, I'm so sick of the press reporting our patients as on a spa vacation or making excuses for their behavior. These guys are sick. They work hard. We need to do a TV show where we show how difficult mm. this is. I was like, whoa, Bob. I, I was like, first, I'm like, did somebody put you up to this? Wow. And he goes, no, I've just been thinking about it. And, and I go, well, and then I told him that people, we, somebody approached me. There, there's interest. And he, and he goes, yeah. he goes, yes, we have to do it. And I'll never forget, he smacked his knees down, smacked his hands under the knees and jumped, ran out of my office. Yes, we're going to do it. And I was like, okay, here we go. And that's like a weird confluence of things where producers want to do something and then a hardcore drug addict in recovery suggests doing it. And I'm sure you're like, well, in that case, I guess we have to fucking do it. So that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I want to see Bob on the Special Forces show. How do you think Bob would survive? I don't think it would work. No? I don't think so. Uh-uh. Okay. Uh-uh. And, and I know <laughs> I Unless he spent a year training for it or something. Because that's not his thing. That's not his deal. Well, I mean, I see it looks insane the preview is like fucking escaping underwater scenario yeah yeah, and- yeah submerging cars and stuff but but i want to finish the story about slippery rehab so so there were some really interesting things about it so eventually take a long story short i ended up taking my team my treatment team that i had at a, an acute psychiatric hospital and inserting them into a residential setting we we knew about this residential hospital up the street and I went up there and talked to the psychiatrist who was in charge. I said, you know, could we do a thing like that? He goes, oh, boy, it'd be great. I can't wait. He was in season one and two, the old guy, the old psychiatrist. And so I thought, okay, another guy thinks it's a good idea. I guess we'll do this. And so we inserted our team into that facility and used their policies and procedures and their licensing, but my team. And I was scared. I was really worried they would have an adverse effect on these patients. So every day I was like, are you guys okay? Is this bothering you? You're on cameras. Are you?" Because one of the things I had to do immediately was sort of adjust if somebody was not telling me something because they were defensive, it was my job to get at what they weren't telling me. If they weren't telling me something because there was a camera rolling and they just didn't want to say it, my job is to protect them from having to be exposed to stuff like that. So it was a really interesting navigation. And I kind of learned how to do that early on. But every day I was like, are you okay? Are you okay? Okay. After about a week of me in group, just kind of starting every group, is everybody good? Is the camera bothering you? Mary Carey, the porn star, leans in. She goes, uh, Drew, I've done just about everything in front of a camera. I understand what this is. We're fine. And I was like, oh, okay, okay, I got, I got it. But the other thing that happened, which was a, a really a God shot, was normally people leave treatment when you stress them. They just leave. 
And because these people wanted to be on TV, and by the way, we held their salary. They had to complete the program to, to get their salary. They wanted their salary. They wanted to be on TV. I could really push them, and they'd stay. And that was extraordinary. That was really a thing. Then something happened to every single patient that I, you know, I was just again a godsend. They went from resistant, wanting to screw us up, wanting to make a big mess out of tre- you know treatment, and you know just, they all came wanting with different sort of everything but treatments. You know what I mean? None of them really wanted treatment, but we took it very very seriously. And within a week, every single one of them was would realized what we were doing felt deeply affected by the treatment, changed by it, and then wanting to be a, a good example to other people and share it with them. Every single person by week two was like, oh my God, I f- this is this is important. I want to I want to be an example of doing this right and help you educate other people about what this is. Crazy. Never expected that. So that happened in every group and that was, uh, okay, so the ability to keep them in longer, ability to really treat them aggressively. And then the fact that they all wound up wanting to be a, a model of good recovery was extraordinary. And it was an entertaining show. Like I've told you, well, I that's watched- That's why they put it together, right? I don't, I didn't see 90% of the stuff on TV. I used through the whole show. It was a great, it was a great show to get high to. And, and I never got clean while it was on, but I really, because I was with them and yeah. I, and we, and, we, and as somebody who was in and out of, and I was in Los Angeles at the time, somebody who's in and out of detox is watching celebrities go through detox. It's a very comforting experience. That's interesting. It, it's not, it's, it's not good, but um, it's funny to me. Uh, no, but so, it makes sense to me. I hadn't thought about it that way. But, but. Same with Intervention. Uh, like you watch that show. I mean, I can't watch it now. My mm. wife watches Intervention like to go to sleep. <laughs> That's just how it is. Yeah. And and I'm like, why is this on in my house right now? Like, why am I watching this it's now? Yeah. It's not that. It's just crazy. It's yeah. like when you've lived through it and then it's the TV show, you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Mm. But uh, your daughter just celebrated a year clean. Yep. Amazing. 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 Paulina. Yeah. Amazing. And she uh, hit a bottom uh, like Christmas Eve, came in on her knees back home. To you. Literally came home on her knees. And always, you know, my, she'd been around me talking about recovery and treatment forever. And that was always like, oh, I'm a, I'm, what do they call it? I'm a harm avoidance strategy and I'm using responsibly. Blah, 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 blah. She, she had all the vernacular. All right? the vernacular, all the defense and was deep in it and hit a bottom. And, uh, uh, much to my amazement, because she knew it's it's an interesting thing. It's like having a parent in recovery, in my experience, does the same thing. Now I'm seeing as having a treatment professional around the house too. When the kids finally need it, they grab it. They don't go in and out like some people do. They just go in and they stay with it. And so Christmas Eve, she went to a meeting, two meetings on Christmas Day, and has never missed a day since. Immediately worked through four different sponsors because she had wanted to get the right one. Way on in her steps, and it's amazing. Just, it's a miracle to watch. How involved were you in her recovery? Only there is a sort of when needed. I, I have so much experience with people across, particularly the first year, that she would, you know, ask just questions, you know, sort of what to expect and what she should be doing and refinements and things like. Like she was messing around with dating and stuff. I'm like, mm, talk to your sponsor. There's a lot of stuff where I go, talk to your sponsor. <laughs> your sponsor say that's okay. No, but, 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 but like she had to learn the hard way, of course. And uh, yeah, I was just it, I, was, I kept going go to SA meetings, go to SLA meetings. Right, right. Well, that's a whole other bag of wax. SLA is a fascinating fellowship. Well, fascinating. Yeah. yeah. But was it difficult to wear, to go from clinician to father? No, 
I was so grateful that I had, I, I was not treating her. I was not acting like that. I was just so grateful that I had this, I really had a fund of knowledge that was helpful to her. I, I just know, I know what this is. I know how to do it. I know how to help people through it. And when's the last time you actively worked with addicts or alcoholics? A day does not go by that I'm not talking to one or referring <laughs> one or doing something. Really, it's probably more on the codependency side. I'm, I'm engaged these days because they're the ones calling me and contacting me and I'm trying to get them to do their piece. But I've not, I've not run a program since 2010. Explain that to me, the codependency piece. My brother, husband, whatever, fill in the blank. What am I going to do with him? He's I, He's been to treatment multiple times. Blah, blah. I'll do anything to help him. Where should I go now? What do we, how do we cure him now? What can I do to save him? How do I save him this minute? Like right now, you must have fairy dust. That's where we start always. And one of the things I always start with, in addition to trying to find really what the treatment needs are and where to send them, which is not easy these days. And resources are impossible, right? Nobody pays for anything. But you, you can kind of find treatment. Which includes, you know, tell them to go to a meeting right now. Zoom has changed that. You just go look, log on to Zoom and go to a meeting right now. Raise your hand. Say, I'm in trouble. And then we'll find a place for them in the meantime. Mm, eight times out of ten, they don't do it. They, they Maybe are. nine. Yeah. <laughs> you know. no, more like eight because I get people when they're kind of desperate a little bit. And, and But then the codependence is the bigger issue. So the co, I'm like, okay, you'll do anything, anything. Okay. I am telling you. Here's what you need to do. I'm going to tell you to do one thing and one thing only. And if you don't do it, you not only are not doing the thing I'm ordering you to do, you are actively participating in your loved one's demise. Do we understand each other? I'm not saying exercise and lower your fat intake. I'm not saying cut back on alcohol. I'm saying do this thing that I'm about to tell you what to do. Go to Al-Anon. Get a sponsor. You can go Zoom, just like the, the attic meetings. Go to Zoom if you want. Get a sponsor and start working with them. And do not speak to your loved one without checking in with your sponsor. One out of ten do it. Right. Al-Anon over Narconon and Families Anonymous? You usually start with Al-Anon, yeah. As things go along, I kind of see where they fit. Narconon would be great for many of them. But they, I can't get them to go to Al-Anon Zoom meeting. For some Narconon's reason. A little, that's a little taller order for people to go to when they're in den their denial is so massive. So what's that for some reason? Why? My parents went to Families Anonymous and they and they they started like they got into a, a square dancing group, a gay square dancing group called okay. the Times Squares. OK. And they they forgot about me. <laughs> they were just they were just dancing the night right, away. Well, but that's good, though. That was it that, was great. Yeah, it was great for everybody. And um, one thing we always talk about when talking about treatment, when talking about recovery yeah. is co-occurring mental health disorders. Which are massive now, right? Well, when do you know you have one? Doesn't everybody have them constantly? So so in the first six to 12 months of recovery, it, you can't make a firm diagnosis of anything. Not at all. Except addiction. Okay. <laughs> Get off drugs, see where you are. Now, the reality is that people are benefited from symptomatic manifestation of mental illness that can be from the drugs or from the withdrawal or from the mood disorders caused by the drugs. So treating them is reasonable. Labeling is what I worry about. So for instance, mood stabilizing medication like Depakote, or th that's very helpful in the early part of recovery. Neurontin, very effective. I mean, literally your brain's on fire early on. So this kind of thing, who knows you know, how, what you're going to look like. I want to try to make recovery possible. I don't want to say, you have bipolar disorder. And once we treat your bipolar disorder, you're going to be better. No. I'm going to say, you're a little hypomanic. It's going to be hard to get 
focus on the program unless we kind of do something here and probably it's a withdrawal symptom from your Xanax or whatever. And let's just try some stuff. See if we can make recovery more likely that that's kind of how I approach it. Now, the other reality is, is that if you have bad enough addiction that you need to see me, me, you have a hundred percent probability of childhood trauma. Okay. And something, you know, some sort of trauma in there. And the question then becomes, well, when do you treat that? And that's a that's the kind of the artistry in all this. There's some people that treat it right up front. I think that's a giant mistake. A patients don't remember <laughs> the treatment. You don't remember. Do you remember your first two months of sobriety? Some of the time, no. Uh, yeah, you don't. No. You don't remember it. Two, it can only it can sometimes exacerbate your desire to use. Right. It can and it can you know inflame all kinds of things. So it's at least, in my opinion, three to twelve months out there somewhere. You know, you start to to talk about that. And with trauma, like big T, little T business, like what is little T trauma really all about? Like who doesn't have that? Nobody. Everybody has yeah. it. And it's about how affected you Correct. are by the experiences you've had. Correct. Is that based on how sensitive you are? Because I feel like I'm a big sensitive pussy. Yeah. Yeah. Like I grew up and, and like, I don't say I have trauma, yeah. but everyone's bandying trauma about like, yeah. I'm a heroin addict. I must be traumatized. Yeah. And, 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 and by the way, you didn't see me. So I'm not saying all addicts have trauma. I'm saying if it gets bad enough that you're getting to my inpatient psychiatric hospital for the really sick patients, there's trauma. But not everybody, right? It, it, especially these days. Not everybody what? Has trauma. Not everybody. Not even they, little t? Oh, well, everybody has a little trauma, to be fair. But I, but I think of sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, and all that kind of stuff. And you have to, you know, the way people deal with trauma, it walls off, right? You can't access it. That's the big problem with that part of your brain, the part of yourself that's traumatized. You have to tease it out of the patients. I mean, every single one of them. You go, well, have you, were, you, were you physically abused? No, <laughs> no, no, no. I go, were you disciplined? Oh, yeah, disciplined. Like, like everybody needs discipline. It's good for me. I go, okay. Did they raise your, their hand to you? Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. That was my discipline. Did they pick up an object? Oh, come on. No. Well, no. Well, there was an axe and a tennis racket. Yeah. There's a really big stick yeah. that we <laughs> once in a while No, they literally axe, tennis, and stuff like bats and things. Always, always in there. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Okay. And then sexual abuse. No, no, no. When I was 13, though, I'm sex. How old were you? Did I have to say, how old were you first had sex? Well, I was 12 and a half, and the girl was 19. It was awesome. It's like, nope, that, well, that's sexual abuse. <laughs> so... People, you know, the brain just deals with it in these very specific ways and it's all walled off and has an energy or it needs attention all the time in ways that people aren't aware of. And you got to integrate it in with the rest of their central nervous system. That's the goal. So little T trauma. Okay. Little T trauma is everybody just being born is a little T trauma, right? And with, and I, I pushed, I didn't say anything when you talked about being sensitive because I don't really know what that means. But people do throw that term around in the rooms, right? I'm, addicts are sensitive. They are sensitive. But I'm not, I'm not sure what we really mean by that, except th- the way I interpret it is that things get in. Things just get in more easily, whatever that means. Like Almost like your sensory world is just things get in. And that said, I think that's a reasonable thing. And so things affect people differently. That's true. When did people start saying little t? Uh, as long as I've been a physician, 40 years. I don't think I ever heard it. I went to this uh, this interesting kind of music festival thing that was focusing on wellness. And they, in the first day, there was some practitioner who's talking about big T, little T. And I'm like, fuck, I'm traumatized. <laughs> you know what I mean? It all came, it it's all, actually, it's an old term. It's an old thing. 
it's it's really just look that was really if if i if i my memory serves me of the history of all this back when i was screaming about trauma being a major issue in this country early 90s mid 90s my my profession literally denied that childhood experience they were in a, for about 10 years childhood experiences had no impact on who you were and what you were experiencing then the adverse childhood experience study came out of kaiser oh lo and behold if you have three to five of these adverse experiences you're fucked. You're, you're fucked. You have health problems, physical problems, right. mental health problems. It's like, yeah, no shit. And and the thing now, thankfully, the thing that that really added was things like divorce and domestic aggression and all this kind of stuff that really are traumatic for kids. And before there was denial about that, massive denial. Yeah, a, a, a parent in jail, a parent with drug addiction, these traumatic things. So the the scale, the, the the definition of trauma expanded in that period. And so people started talking about, well, what's a really a trauma? What's a little t trauma? It kind of went away with the A score because it just, it all had a deleterious impact on health and development. So it all just became trauma. I never took the ACE test. I feel like I really missed out on a lot of stuff in rehab. It's annoying. But I do, is there an addict that doesn't suffer anxiety depression i mean like there's is there Those little are, d big but, d depression you, well there's depression anxiety that are symptoms of addiction and there's depression anxiety that are symptoms of a co-occurring disorder right and and again part of recovery is built around anxiety and depression i mean the fourth and fifth steps you know and the, and the fellowship and all it's designed to manage anxiety and depression and it's ubiquitous it's i've never met an alcoholic that wasn't depressed well chris and i when we started the show we would make fun of each other all the time and we would uh, talk about severe mental illness, right? But we would say we had it and we'd call it, we'd say SMI and, and whenever Chris would tell a story, I'd be like, your fucking SMI is acting up. And, yeah. and so like it became like the ism yeah. became just like the fucked up addict shit, like like the self-doubt, like the fucking fear, the any of those things that all addicts tend to do when they're not, fucking right at the program right where they have to be I, I can't in order tell to you, avoid it can't tell you how many times a day i run into that in peers and friends that are in the program and each time i'm like will you fucking get to a meeting <laughs> you just shut up and go to a meeting every time it works right or you make a phone call or make well some of them are already making calls but they need to get they're just they're out of sync they just need to get back in sync with the program or i mean like go to a meeting right go to There's a, a lot of you know pity pot stuff and then and then also you know, it's just the negative stuff, all the negative self-talk and all that. I got a really fucked up email nice. that, that I think I could use okay. expertise on. All right. So I'm going to, I'm going to. And, and let me state again about the SMI. SMI definitely occurs with addiction. It definitely is a thing. Don't, don't kid yourself. It happens. And, oh, and this is the thing my daughter picked up and I've been talking about for years is that denial, Denial is not just a feature of addiction. It's a feature of serious mental illness also. And in both cases, denial becomes so magnificent, so big, it's actually biological. It's, it fits more with something called anisognosia, which is a neurological term for inability to see what's happening. And that, that's where people are. I mean, how, that's how people end in the streets. Right. Where does self-deception end and denial begin? Like, are they the same thing? Like when I used to, when I, the best treatment, I, well, one of the best treatments I was ever in, it was all self-deception. You, uh, you suffer from self-deception. They would say that to us constantly where we 
and it, I guess it's just denial. It's, it's not really a clinical well, term. Well, it's it? not a clinical term, but I, I kind of dig it. But, but because denial is made up of many, many, many different things, right? Denial is anesthesia. It's the biology of addiction. It is pharmacological effects of the drugs. You don't remember or perceive what's happening. It's withdrawal. It is brain injury from what you've done to yourself. Mm. It, it is you know, the, the disease itself, there has, and there's psychological aspects to denial. Denial can, you know, be, you don't want to, you have shame and guilt and all this stuff. My favorite denial, story, and, and by the way, denial goes on for a long time before you get all the way through it. One of my favorite denial stories was a, a guy that worked for me. He was a counselor, long-term sober guy. And he started telling the story. He goes, you know, I just, the other day I, I thought of something. <laughs> Years later, he thinks of it. And he goes, yeah, when I, when I was drinking, uh, my wife would, you know, tell me in the morning that I was a maniac and yelling at her and stuff. He goes, fuck, fuck her. I had no recollection of that. She's full of shit. She just doesn't like it when I drink. She's, you know, bumming my high, whatever. And uh, she says, one day he comes downstairs to the kitchen and there's one of those little tape recorders. You remember those old cassette recorders with the, with the buttons? The little one, yeah. And she goes, hey, listen to this. And uh, she'd recorded him the night before and he said he heard this guy that sounded like him railing and raving and going just maniacally screaming and his reaction was to become furious with his wife how dare she hire an actor wow. to make him believe he behaved like that wow didn't realize he had done that till years into his recovery wow that's how powerful denial is i love that story it's a good story right? that's great yeah. anyone in the dopey nation that has a similar denial story please send denial me. stories are great they're so good yeah send an email to or a voicemail to dopey podcast at gmail and, and it works making note humans are funny it's we're, crazy we're just though. funny we're we are. capable of some weird fucking shit but it's important to laugh at it really is and people feel that's that that maybe isn't a good idea i think it is a good idea i think humans always have dealt with adversity with humor and it's really it's it helps you perceive all this stuff when you laugh at it you know what i mean you, you it, it gets in better when you can kind of go oh god weird is it crazy how we get it's crazy it's Thank a god leveling it's a leveling thing too. Yeah. It's like it's there's a way to find humility in it. There's a way to not be fucking crazy, arrogant, all those things. Like yeah. and I'm I mean, like, I'm shocked that dopey is still happening seven years later. I love it. I love it, but I miss Chris. I see it in you. I feel it myself. And I just it just fucking I fucking hate this disease sometimes. It is it so is so crazy. It is so crazy that the show goes on without him and it's gone it, on it's way long. It's important. It's gone on way longer without him than it did with him. I know, I know, but, but, it's, but it's in his name in a weird way. And I, I don't, I, I, the, the Twitter says Dave and Chris, the yeah. Instagram says Dave and Chris, because if anyone writes me, they says this Dave or Chris, I know they don't know anything about the show. Mm. Like that's my weird fucked good, up good. litmus test that's for good. people. And also I will not take Chris, Chris has mentioned every episode. And you know? do you might want to, if you guys, if any of you are not exposed to Chris's story, he told it in the very first podcast that I was on with you guys because I was there. I was working at the hospital where he was and I saw how just disastrous things were. And it's a story of not just of a bottom and how crazy you can get in your disease, but it's about how psychiatry can fuck you up if they don't understand what they're doing. They don't understand this illness. It, it can really mess you up. And yeah, so go back and listen to the first Dr. Drew experience yeah. episode on dopamine. It was like six, seven years ago, six years ago? It was, I want to say five years yeah. ago. But it was that was the episode where we got our equipment, so it was very important. Wow. Now I'm going to read you this this okay. email because it's fucked up. Yeah. It says Dave, I'm just going to spill it. 
And I'm reading it to you because I don't really know how to respond except... Tell, tell me who this is. It's a woman named Tammy. And it's just a, a, a fan of the show or yeah. part of the community? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm just going to spill it. I had a plan to go in a completely different direction, but plans change. I want to preface this by saying that I am not suicidal, but I am done. I don't know what the difference is, but there is a difference. I am not trying to write you a huge long email because that's annoying and selfish. I'm going to follow this up by leaving you a voicemail on the Dopey Podcast hotline as well. I am at a loss. Here's why. 34 rehabs, numerous halfway houses, three years in methadone clinic, tapered mm. to zero. Mm. Tried Vivitrol shot a few years ago, got high while on it. I don't know how that works. Three years on Suboxone, relapsed on crack, and then not long before I was selling subs and back on dope. Overdose, overdose, overdose. I am currently fucked. I am just done. I'm sick of everything and everyone. To be clear, I am not suicidal. I'm just done. I have no idea what I'm doing or what I want to do about not knowing what to do. People tell me to reach out, call me, but that's not really what they mean. I have no motivation. I give zero fucks. I will not leave my dog and go away to yet another treatment center. Kick that number up to 35. Nope, no fucking way. I don't know what to do. And I don't know what to do about not knowing what to do. I need help, help. I need fucking help. I want to help people. I know I have so much to give. I listened to the episode right after Chris died. Oh my God, Jesus. Why him and not me? I listened to the one four years later with the update on Annie, which is Chris's girlfriend. I'd already been drawn to her, but after all that I knew, I needed to find her. So I did. We have been communicating through Instagram. I told her a little bit about myself. I told her I really wanted to be a guest on Dopey. I want to make a difference. I have absolutely no idea how I can go about doing that, especially when I need to help myself. But sometimes those two things go hand in hand. Dave, it's entirely possible that you and I were once the same person. That's how similar our past experiences have been. I really hope we can connect. Something drew me to Annie and it's drawing me to you. I will always trust my gut because it has never failed me. Yeah. I don't give up ever. And that's Tammy. What do you think, Dr. Drew? Well, I, I it's a lot. I literally can't comment because I don't know her. But let me just observe a couple things. She reports zero motivation and yet is able to write you a very long, involved email. I think it's her third one, too. Right. So so that's good. So the, the, what the feeling is not connecting to the behaviors, right? So there's some ability to do stuff. There's hope there. There's hope there. I, I would like to know more about her interpersonal functioning, you know, how she does with people and relationships and things like that. I, it may be that that's preventing her from getting what she needs from the program. Sometimes people can't have closeness, and you can work on that. You can work on the closeness. There's, you know, obviously a part of me goes, let's get her to the hospital. We got we to work on this. That's all I know how to do. But there's another part that you guys can do in the program and go, we're coming to get you. You're going to a fucking meeting now. And just go to meetings. Just start going. Uh, she knows how to do it. She's been treated 35 times. She knows what she's supposed to do. But she's physically addicted to heroin. Right oh, now. right now she's physically her Her suboxone and methadone history is a little weird. I don't know quite what to make of that either. Like what was going on there and... And breaking through the Vivitrol too, and and right, and why why go to zero on the Suboxone? If she's having such difficulty, why not stay on something for a while? She didn't want to. I mean, well, I, every the, time, you know, right? Uh, you think you you think you're going to be better off without it, and you're not always. But she's making the decisions. That's the problem, right? So she's she, uh, on one hand, she's saying, I, "I'm at my bottom," but she still hasn't capitulated. 
right? And Explain she, what you mean by that. When you run up the flag, we say, put up the white flag. Surrender. Up, surrender. She's right. not surrendering. She's still running the show. And she's, you know, she she's different than somebody who goes, I'm at my bottom. Tell me what to do. And I'll do I'll anything. I'll do anything. Right. But she's, but the problem is that the I'll do anything may be interrupted by this, what might be a really serious mood disorder. And that's kind of worrisome, right? I mean, those, that really, that happens. People get severely depressed and their life can be endangered by that. So that's what worries me. That's why I'm not going to say too much. Not to mention using heroin in America right now is paramount to using yeah. fentanyl in yep. America right that's now. Right. And you can just die anyway. Yep. That's right. So Tammy, listen to Dr. Drew. He's not commenting. Well, I am. Get help. Yeah, yeah. Get help, I mean, Tammy. I mean, you can go do a detox somewhere. You do an outpatient detox. You know how to do it. You've done it. Go do it. Start going to meetings. That's all you You don't need to leave your dog, you're saying. Keep it simple. She doesn't need to leave her dog. Keep it simple. I, I and, and let people sit on you. Let the program, let people come in and sit on you. There's something, my, my instinct is there's something going on interpersonally for her. Like she can't trust people, which is, again, trauma. Can't trust, can't tolerate closeness. And that's what you have to do to get sober. You have to do some of that. I don't know if you know about this. Dopey Nation and COVID started this crazy Zoom. They do 26 Dopey Nation Zooms a week. Non-denominational Zooms. She should go on that. I tell her. I say, go to Do Tammy, go to Dopey Nation Zoom. They do 26 a week, Dr. Drew. Mm -hmm. It's pretty amazing. I have this vision for a non-denominational recovery plan. I don't mm -hmm. know what it is. I don't know how it works. What do you mean by non-denominational? I mean like this morning I spoke at NA, but I got You're, sober in AA. And, and then so there's smart. Well, non-labeled. Non, non. It's like these fellowships are all yeah, up against each other. Yeah, just some, just a general fellowship. Like a Unitarian recovery. No, there should be that. Of yeah, course yeah. there should. Well, there you. There has been things like that over the years. Uh, I've seen a lot of, and most of them went south <laughs> because they become, you got to watch out for, it's weird that I didn't expect to talk about this today, but but codependency run amok can ruin meetings. And, and that tended to be what happened with these Unitarian meetings was a lot of trauma stuff got in there and trauma became the topic of discussion because there weren't the usual structure in place. There wasn't enough rules that, yeah. that are designed yeah. to, to help this person do this yeah. thing. Yeah. It's just, it's interesting because uh, you don't know what fellowship is going to be built for you. And I have a new intern who's very bright. Her name is Claire. She loves you. That's what, one of the things she wanted hi, me to say. Hi, Claire. She has, uh, she has some good questions that okay. I wanted to okay. read you. Good. Claire's questions. First of all, you answered the first one. I, I, I took credit for the first one. Her, it was her question. How long should you wait after getting sober when you can be diagnosed with a mental disorder? So we said like six yes. or 12 months. Okay, this is a Ideally. good one. But, but then remember, Claire, I said, Claire, still be treated. Psychotropic meds can still be useful in dealing with the symptomatology of addiction and make recovery possible without carrying a diagnosis. Okay, explain you, that. To, you can be manic. Human. You can be manic or not sleep or be depressed and be unable to, you know, participate in meetings because your symptomatology of your brain problem is so profound. You got to make recovery possible. I, I, and I said Neurontin, Depakote, these things become very useful early in recovery. All right. And then this one is a good one. Claire, had, uh, she had friends. I, got, I have friends that got weed bought by their parents for them when they were 16. Uh, what do you think about that? Like parents buying weed for children. Very common. It's a mess. The lack of honest and rigorous parenting truth around cannabis is a real problem right now. Oh, I, yeah. It's not a problem for everybody, but it is a problem for some. And adolescent brains, it's a problem. Well, it's like on one hand, I think it's good for a parent to give a kid a fentanyl test strip, but it's bad for a parent to give a kid weed. 
it's bad to give the kid fentanyl too or alcohol or anything else. You know, most alcoholics first drink is in the home. That's not good. So you say do not buy your children weed do even if they it. really want it. No. Okay. Your job is to keep them drug and alcohol free up to the age of 18. That that's your job. And and with this deluge of uh overprescribing Adderall and Ritalin yeah, and yeah, children. Yeah. What do you think about that first of all? Yeah, there's there's both over and under prescribing simultaneously, which is really weird. Using it for anything other than a diagnosed condition is a disaster. And when it first you start, first started seeing all these stimulus in childhood, I thought we were causing the amphetamine, the stimulant uh, pandemic, which I was saying or epidemic at the time. And the literature is quite clear: if you treat kids, they have a lower risk of addiction. My concern is after the age of 18. If you stay on these psychostimulants, that's when people get into trouble. That's been my experience. So before you're 18. Let's say before 16, just to be sort of global about this. Under under 16, there seems to be real benefits. Yes, and, and there's overprescribing and there's underprescribing. But the science does suggest there are real benefits, properly diagnosed. It's all case by case. Yeah. And um, what about breaks in like prescribing Adderall? Or well, I, by the way, try everything else first. Right. I mean, there's lots of other things to do behaviorally. And, and I really think, you know, helping the brain overcome its shortcomings, you know, learning, remember learning, I, I learning, remember sort of. <laughs> learning how to manage your own, you know, sort of strengths and weaknesses is part of being a good student. And I think you've got to really work at that. Some, not possible. There's another little weird thing hidden in AD, ADD, ADHD, is that some data has suggested as many as 90 kids, 90% of kids with that diagnosis have big T drama. Shocking. So, Big T. So maybe looking at that a little bit too. I just read about treating meth addiction with Adderall. Have you read about that? That's. Let it out, doctor. It, it's a disaster. Okay. I've, I've been through so many cycles of doctors trying to find the magic pill to treat drug addiction. I, Suboxone was sort of a, 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 a finally a little bit of a leap forward. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I'm not totally convinced. So Adderall I, is not the Suboxone no. for meth? no. Okay. No, I've seen it so many disasters from that. So many. All right. I think that's that's that last question was my question. Not I don't want to give Claire too much credit here. <laughs> she had a nice swath of good questions though. So thank you, Claire. That wasn't very many. It was easy. Yeah. Well, she's you know she's she's coming up now. But, the, the, but let me. It does warrant some little more discussion here, which is I've been doing this work since 1985, and I've seen these fads come and go and come and go, and nobody listens to me. When, when I, tell I listen them, to you, doctor, when, I, when my peers, when, when I tell them, like, I've been, we've been down this road. You weren't here 40 years ago. I was there. I watched what it did to people. It's just the medical profession can do so much harm to drug addicts. It's really problematic. We can also help when we understand it, know what we're doing. But if you, if you keep looking for a pill to help, I, was, I woke up this morning thinking about addicts that I screwed up early in my career. Didn't feel good about it. I just didn't understand the addiction well and the, the disease properly. And, uh, you woke up this morning thinking yeah, about it? Yeah. Was there anything specific? I thought about one case where I was moonlighting at this hospital and I gave, she was some kind of drug addict, and I gave her opiates because she convinced me that she needed back them. problem, blah, 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 blah. And she, um, yeah, she developed like some problems. You know, it was just a, it was a mess. It was just a mess. And thank God somebody jumped in quickly and sort of righted the ship a little bit. But I, I just, I thought, God, you know, Probably every doctor has some cases they do this to, and some of them continue to do it their entire career because they don't learn what I learned. 
Now, in the past 40 years, there had to have been some good fads. Suboxone is a good fad. Fads, I'm going to say, I'm going to make a generalization. Fads, always bad. Fad is bad, it rhymes. Fad is bad. Okay. But it, this, this as an instrument, as a tool, it's been a, it's been a move forward. It, because it is a fad and it's over, that, it's overprescribed. That's overprescribed. And for a long, long time. By people who claim to be addiction specialists. I've had literally addiction specialists tell me, some of these people are on the news, there is no such thing as recovery from opiate addiction. I know. It's, it's sad. No such thing does not exist in nature. How could they say that? It's like saying the Holocaust isn't real. How can they say that? I, I know. One more thing. Yeah. Just from a personal standpoint. What has been the hardest thing about being Dr. Drew? When when you just want to do good and help, and then you're told that you're doing something, you know, you're a shithead, you're bad. Like I, we did celebrity rehab because I wanted to do good. And I wanted to, and we ended up treating and helping lots of people. Some of them did fantastic. I mean, it really was really they did great. I mean, Mackenzie and Jenny Ketchum. These people are changed by that experience, and it got them going. It got them in the even Sizemore. I think is good right now, and Heidi Fleiss is better. They're all better. Flavor Flav was he on I, it? I didn't treat him. No. That's too bad. Uh, He's but, doing good though. Yeah, that's good, but it was so great, and and to have people condemn that. And, and by the way, I, I hear every day about people f- for whom that that joke broke through their denial and caused them to look more seriously at their stuff and go into treatment. All the time I hear that. To have people condemn us for that is just so painful because we're just trying to do good. We're just trying to try something to to get, get and push this thing forward to help people with this disease. And the fact that my peers, other physicians, killed my patients, actively killed them, that that's my fault is really a hard pill, particularly patients like Jeff Conway that I was very close to, very close to that it's guy. It's very painful. And these guys all died at the right when we were going to get them too. And, and Jeff Conway called me two weeks before he died. He goes, I am ready. He'd been, they'd put him in a mm. nursing home. Mm. They put him in a nursing home. Why? Because they couldn't safely give the amount of opiates they were giving to him without nursing administration. And he finally came to called me two weeks before and said, this is I am ready. And I said, dude, say the word. I'll put you in right now. Okay, give me a minute. Dead two weeks later. Mike Starr, we had him sober for a year. The guy was so, one of the class, I mean, one of the most extreme drug addicts of all time. And we had him sober for a year. Bob kept working really aggressive with him on a daily basis. He comes in one day and goes, I'm moving to Utah. We're like, what? You know, like, you know, when addicts do that kind of thing, you're like, why? What, what's going on here? Well, I need to get back to my music and I'm going with a band. They're all sober guys. We're going to live in a sober living on the grounds at Cirque Lodge. You know, I got a big plan. We all knew still, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. And that's when he called me a couple months later with the back pain. I'm like, no, don't tell anybody. Do not go to a doctor. Dead two weeks later. How hard is it to be a public figure who is a doctor it's that a, people lean on you to have opinions and yeah. then they slam your opinions? Yeah, it's really hard. So, Dr. Drew, what do you do when, the, when that just, happens? I just keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep trying to do I, – I really learned lately more acutely that I do know what's good. I do know what's right. My compass is pretty good. It's proven itself over and over again. So just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And on top of that – I've had this extraordinary experience. So so I applied for the physician. They sort of had a volunteer group here in New York for COVID. Mm-hmm. But in the in the darkest hours, I said, sign me up. You know, sign me up. I'll come out and I'll work in the ICU, whatever. And they started going through the interview process with me. And the whole thing subsided just when they were about to bring me out here. 
But in the interview process, they were shocked that I had done for decades ICU management, ventilator management. I could intubate. I could do lines. I could do all this. I did it for years and years. And I realized, oh, shit, they're not training internists to do this anymore. So I worked in the ICU a lot. I was going to be a cardiologist. Worked in the hospital a lot. I did outpatient medicine a lot. And then I had this whole career in the psychiatric setting. That doesn't exist anymore. Nobody has that experience of humanity that I've had. So they do way more specialization now? They just narrower, yeah. So you either go hospital or outpatient or ward intensive care. You don't get to see it all. And you certainly don't get to be an internist in a psychiatric hospital running an addiction program. The psychiatry owns that. It's really rare to have that position. And I just feel like I have to give that back. I have to like wherever I can take that knowledge, just push it out because it just doesn't exist anymore. And I, and I have this sort of extraordinary experience because of it. When do you feel doubt ever? Like as somebody who has, I just all- felt doubt when you were reading that email. You did, yeah. I always feel I, I'm, I feel caution, doubt, uncertainty. You're asking me something precarious, but somebody who's in trouble. You know, it, it, I, I worry that I'm going to make things worse. Always, do no harm is always my credo. And then at the same time, I'm trying to offer something for that person, and then I've got a meta thing in my head where I'm trying to say something that other people can learn from who are listening. Wow, I really appreciate you, Dr. Drew. This has been really, I think this is my, this is my favorite Dr. Drew experience. I really? Think. I think so. Let's keep going. All right, well, what else you got? What, what, do you, what do you want to know? I want to know, and this is going to be very controversial. Okay. During COVID, yeah. you had that horrible flack. Yeah, you horrible. Were, can you describe it to the okay. Dopey Nation? So first six weeks that COVID was in the news, I was deeply concerned that the press, people like the New York Times editorial board, and people who just had no business having an opinion, let alone being listened to, were fomenting hysteria and panic. And I was like, this cannot, this is not going to make things better. This is going to make things worse. So I went actively out there. I said, calm down. I tried, I made, here's, here are the series of errors that I made. Number one, I shouldn't have compared it against other pandemics. And just, but now I can't because now we can kind of, you, people can dispassionately look at it. We'd had a pandemic 10 years prior called H1N1. It killed 300,000 people and no one knew it happened. I had H1N1. It was fucking brutal. It's a terrible illness. I treated it, terrible illness. But no one even knew there was a pandemic. And I was just saying, look, we just had one. We're going to freak out about this one. And you just had one. There's got to be a middle ground. There's got to be a middle ground. And I got lots of pushback. So I kept going out there. Me, Oz, and Dr. Phil, strangely, were all saying the same thing. We all got shit about it. But somebody, here's where really think the shit hit the fan. And here's my other mistake was I didn't quite appreciate the r not of this thing. I didn't appreciate how infectious it was. I knew it was going to be bad. I knew it was going to hurt people. I knew old people were going to be devastated by this. But there was nothing. It's a respiratory virus. You can't do anything. We don't have anything to do with that. And my dad was an old family practitioner. And literally in my head was him talking to me going, dude, we had polio, yellow fever, malaria. Cholera was killing people. And you're going to close the world over a respiratory virus? What? What are you doing? I just had that in my head the whole time. So because I knew lockdowns wouldn't work. And, and, but I was faith. I did feel like a vaccine was a great thing. I think we'd get there. I thought I kept saying, I have faith in the medical system. We will, we will do this. We will, we will take care of people. We will figure it out. We'll come up with a vaccine. 
And I went out on multiple social media platforms and things and started saying, don't worry about it. It's like the, you know, the, the influenza kills this many people. And I started comparing, comparing, comparing. At the end of every single commentary, I would say, but please just listen to the CDC, listen to Fauci. He's been my hero for my entire career. He'll get us through this. So somebody put together a video with just the, the net, flu stuff, the flu stuff right. took cut off the CDC and the Fauci stuff, which now I'm getting killed for, for saying that Fauci is somebody that we should listen to. And by the way, I'm having real trouble with that too lately because I was very active in the AIDS epidemic, treating AIDS patients. And uh, he was my hero in that. I, I was there when the AZT boxes were open. I was there when we had something to do now for these patients. And he was extremely helpful, though I can see now some of his biases back then. He liked using fear a lot. And he encouraged us to use fear and he encouraged us to get in the media. And he's why I got on the radio. Dr. Fauci. Yep. Yep. So describe what, so you're, you're so, basically so, you're speaking your truth. It, what it makes me see is social media, the danger yeah. of social media, the, the plague of well, social and, media. And I think, I think we're going to find when all the Twitter files drop, I'm going to be in there somewhere because the, the degree, the magnitude of what rained down on me was unbelievable. It's scary. It started threatening the lives of my kid. And they were like, you have to apologize. You must apologize. And I said, I'll apologize for what I got wrong. I, I never have a problem. I don't mind apologizing. So I apologized. And to make it right, I signed up for both the California and the New York physician volunteer system. Neither took me, but I was ready to go. I wanted to go to the ICU here, out here. I thought it'd be great to work. I thought I'm good at that. I'd be very helpful, but they didn't, they didn't hire me. How bad of an experience was it when fire is raining down from social media on you? It's um, You sort of can't imagine how threatening it is. It's 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 really bad, but I had been in the public for so long I didn't react the way like some people do. I guess I'd had a lot of negative shit from celebrity rehab or something, and I just sort of was used to negativity. And like I said, keep moving forward. So who do you talk to in that situation? My family, my wife. That's it. And and it it did derail my life for quite a while, and I knew it would. I mean, it's not it's not there. Are people who won't talk to me now and stuff. We're friends and things that that because. The real problem, this, uh, the really crazy shit that happened is that by, because I had that position, somehow that became associated with the right and with Trump and with people like that, which I have no fucking affiliation. <laughs> uh, and I guess because I gave a lecture, I, I will go to any White House. I don't care if Beelzebub's in the White House. I will go help a White House. If they need medical stuff, I will go help. I gave a lecture at, at the White House one day with this whole thing about homelessness. And I think people then went, oh, see, see he's with that team. I was like, no. I'm, I'm, and, and, I, and I guess because I wasn't actively anti that team, then you become associated and you are that team. So whatever. But it was, that was so weird that it became then not only are you, have you made the wrong call or you've had some errors in your call. By the way, my instinct was absolutely correct though. Now in retrospect, yeah. I, was, I was absolutely correct, but no one wanted to hear it. But then to be painted with a brush, I can't go on CNN anymore. I can't go on MSC anymore. People won't talk to me who are my friends for a long time. As, as, Did you know, people start trickling back? Little bit right now. I'm, I'm making an active effort to go after people who've been critical because nine out of 10 people will get on the phone with me, will talk to me. And lo and behold, guess what? We all agree on pretty much everything. It's not all this disagreement. It's the, it's the function of social media that I think really caused it. Something about the way this 
video was edited, the way people responded, then the way it was amplified on Twitter. We, we know they were monkeying with things now. How psychologically damaging do you think social media is to us? I think we will, I think the way I think about this fundamentally, and by the way, there are a lot of addicts to the screen out there, real, true I'm, I'm fucking one of them. I, I, yeah, I have a hard. problem. It's hard. I think we will, particularly for young people, we will look at these instruments. I'm holding up an iPhone right now. We will consider it the way we look at tobacco for a young person now, one day. I, I, I am taking it away from my kid every yeah. every turn, and she's getting upset. And I'm like, I'm doing this to help you. Yep. You know, like yep. I feel it corroding my brain. Yep. I feel it corroding my brain. And then you have this platform, this giant platform that turns on you yeah. like piranhas in a classroom. Yeah, like, mob. It's full mob. And then, and I, you know, it's interesting. By the way, it was also traumatic. And I, I know it's traumatic because I can feel myself speeding up now as I talk about it. I didn't realize really that it was that traumatic, but it, it was. But it's interesting. In my narcissism book, I wanted to put a chapter about mob and scapegoating because I could feel it coming. It's, it's a feature of narcissism for narcissists to gather together to project onto other people and then act out their aggression collectively. That's a feature. That's how narcissists function. And I thought, God, we have so much narcissism. There's going to be scapegoating. There's going to be guillotines, I kept saying, that we should be studying pre-revolutionary France. And there was another narcissistic wave in that period of history too. And I said, we're going to, something like that's going to happen. And lo and behold, and it happens to you. It happens to me. So does it help that you're an expert for your own mental health or does it not make a difference? Hard to say because I, my experience was my experience. Probably helped. Probably all helped. Is this but, big T or little T? Uh, little that might be T. medium T. Medium T. Social media medium, medium T. Medium T. Well, to take us back to our beginning, it feels about the same trauma as uh, being in the Wadi Rum Desert with my friends getting my ass kicked. That was a medium T trauma too. Right. So it feels about the same as that. That's interesting. Yeah. And how long did that feeling last? How long was that period post-COVID? Because now every... You know, it's interesting. I, right after that, was asked to be on a nightly news broadcast in Los Angeles on Fox 11. This is the local Fox affiliate, not Fox News, Fox Network. And we did an, every night, this guy named Alex Michelson is an anchor there. He and I did a, a half hour review on COVID every night. And that gave me the opportunity to state my position over and over and over again. And it felt like if people wanted to argue about what my position was, they I just listen to what we said last night, listen to tonight. And then Alex would get on and defend me too, because I've been sitting next to this guy for three months. He's never said anything except, you know, the following things. In a situation like that, how susceptible to social media are you? Like, like when you talk about this I, as cigarettes. I, have a, I, I would... Twitter lately has been somewhat entertaining, so I, I'm this. I'm gonna back. Make, I'm going to make a statement, but but I hated it before that. Hate it. I know, and I feel that way about Facebook. Too. I hate it. So if I didn't need it to do my work, mm -hmm. I, no way I would use it. No way. It's fascinating the the endorphin creating aspect of something Ugh, like that. I don't like it. That's empty carrot. I don't calories. like opiates either. You'll be shocked to know. Well, I really liked opiates, right? I really enjoyed them. Yeah. You didn't like how they felt. I liked how they felt. I know. That's how you became an opiate addict. All my opiate addicted friends like, what? You don't like? How is that possible? But did you, did, you, did you You did a little coke, I remember. Yeah. Did you do any, did you ever do any speed? No, never done speed. Did you ever mainline crystal meth? No, I never mainlined uh, just, anything. Just, just making sure. Uh, um, right. But, but the endorphin created from a like 
is so different than the endorphin created from an opiate, no? But you're bringing up an interesting point, though, which is that there's two systems in the brain. There's the liking system and there's the wanting system. What are they technically? Well, the liking is more the endorphin system. It's the high feeling. It's I like how I feel when I'm on that. But as every addict knows, eventually you don't like how you feel, but you still want. And the disease is really wanting. It's the part of the brain that says, do that again, do that again, do that again. And it's well outside of consciousness. I, I bristle when people say, I'm getting a dopamine surge. You don't feel anything when you get a dopamine surge except fucking do that again. Right. I want more. More. Do it again. I, I, I talked to this woman about trauma, big T, little T, and she said she suffered little T trauma in that she didn't feel known, right? That was her little T trauma. Didn't feel known by whom? Let's not go any further. She didn't feel known. That was her little T trauma. And But it makes me think of social media that when you are liked, you feel known. You feel like someone's paying attention to you. You feel like somebody yeah, cares. No, there's definitely, it's it's definitely crafted specifically to to change our behavior to, to manipulate us do you 100%. think that addiction treatment is going to go to this bob and i have spent a lot of time thinking about the fact that that traditional treatment for millennials and gen z is just not not getting traction the way it used to and we've been trying to figure out ways to include this the phone and people are coming up with models where the phone is a part of it because it's just so much part of their life they can't relate to anything that's not including the phone the phone is is frightening to me, yeah. and I've been making this effort in the morning. Like I used to wake up in the morning and check, get on the phone. Check your phone. Check all of it. And then all of a sudden I'm diverted to shit that I wasn't looking for at all. And now I'm trying to read and write in the morning Good. Good. and pump my brain up with stuff that isn't this. Good. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's something good in, maybe something good comes out of it. For sure. Now, what are what should people be looking forward to from you, Dr. Drew? What should they see coming? So, what should they be following? So, I'm really enjoying doing digital media right now, Real, like never before. So, I do the Dr. Drew podcast over at the Corolla Network, which is me talking to sort of experts. Adam and Drew, we do a show three days a How's week. How's Adam? He's great. He's here in the city. My dad says, okay, I'm coming over here, right? Yeah. And my dad says, did Dr. Drew fly to New York on a private jet? I was like, yes, dad. Do you follow Dr. Drew on Facebook? He said, no, I think he follows me. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my dad said. Do I on Facebook? No, you do not. Yeah. My dad doesn't know <laughs> so, how Facebook works. <laughs> yeah, this was uh, Adam's, Mark Yergos's thing, and uh, he invited us on. Very thank you, Mark. God bless you. And I don't understand that world <laughs> where you have your own planes and things. It's just too weird to me. But um, we took full advantage of it, came out here on that with Adam, and he was here until he's going back right now on the same aircraft. We are not going back in that aircraft. Are you loving recording with Adam still? Yeah. And so he and I, yeah, we, he, it's, you know, part of getting through some of these things you and I have been talking about just now is having comrades in the trenches with you. And he certainly was one of them. He never walked away during it. No. And he, and he saw, he was even harsher. I mean, he, he was, he was, why are you paying attention to this? You're right. It was the whole time. Like, why does it bother you even? You shouldn't even be bothered. You're going to be proven to be right. Which just shut up. Sort of his thing. But sometimes you need to hear stuff like that. So that's Adam and Drew. And then there is Dr. Drew After Dark, which is sort of a reincarnation of Loveline. That's over at your mom's house. Lately, I've been interviewing comedians and we take phone calls and, you know, to emails and things that are Loveline-esque. The addiction comes up on that one too, just much like, much like it did on Loveline. And then what I'm really into right now is this streaming show, which I'm going to do right as soon as we stop. Is that Ask Dr. Drew? Ask Dr. Drew, which is generally Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, 3 o'clock Pacific time. And I'm taking calls 
and, and a lot of it tends to be on medical and COVID. A lot of, and so on Wednesday in particular, I'm teaming up with Dr. Kelly Victory, who was just re- reinstated on uh, Twitter. And she has some very extreme positions, different than me. I, I'm very moderate in all, the, all things COVID, but I want to understand what the hell happened to us. And so we've been interviewing people that have been silenced, and I've learned a ton from talking to them. And we get labeled, of course, you're an anti-vaxxer. Let me be clear. All my patients over the age of 65 are vaxxed and boosted, use lots of Paxlovid. There are some signals I'm worried about I'd like to learn more about. Like with any medical therapeutic, we see things clinically and we go, oh, I wonder what that is. Let's figure that out. And that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. But somehow that's anathema. Somehow you're not allowed to do that. That bugs me. Maybe that's my, maybe as I'm talking, I'm realizing it's one of my biggest impulses right now is like, I do not like the limitations on our ability to discourse. I don't, it really bugs me. Well, everybody feels like they know everything when they hear one thing. They just learned how to pronounce the words, things like medication that I've been using for 40 years. They learned the word last week and now they're an expert. Well, I think, I think learning, I think figuring out what's happening is what's most important before there's any kind of stance taken on anything. Two of my sponsees just got diagnosed with weird autoimmune disorders. Yeah, there's, a, there's stuff going on. It's, something's up. How old are they? One is 63 and one is 37. And the 37-year-old got it worse. And, and see, you know, a 63-year-old, let's say it is the vaccine. Just for, Let's say it's COVID plus vaccine that's doing it. Because it could be COVID doing all this too, right? A 63-year-old has a lot to gain from being vaccinated. Because COVID can really fuck you up as you get older. The 37-year-old is... And he's a police officer too. 37-year-old so is, is healthy and we're going to make them sick and they have no risk from COVID. That's where I'm having problems. That's where I'm worried. So I've made it, uh, I've made a huge point of keeping dopey, apolitical, a vaccine, a everything. Why should anything like medical management of anything have politics attached to it? It's the most fucked up shit. What is wrong with us? Well, by the way, I went to Europe, I was in Europe a couple weeks ago. No mention of any of this. There's just, it's just, it's, it's here. It's us. Something is wrong with us. So what are we going to do, Dr. We, we have, we have a, what, what is problem in the spirit? as they say in the program. So how do we fix the spirit problem in America? Uh, we keep at it. Just with love, keep, right? Mm, no. Not with love. With a firm hand. What's the firm hand going to do? Firm, firm hand, it, you, get, you get people to kind of hold their shit together until they kind of get to see things more realistically. I wish there was something more that could be done. I wish that people... Well, I think talking is really critical. So just keep at it, keep at it. Keep oh, talking. That's and, what we do. And keep and reach out to people that are attacking or you know disagreeing, whatever. Just reach out to them. Let's let's get in here. Let's all get in the same boat. Come on. Because we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Doctor Drew. Did you feel good? Do you feel like this was your best opie or not your best opie? We're just right up there. It, it's Why hard label? for me to compare because it's over so many years already. No, it, it's I felt a little indulgent this time. Why? Like, because I was indulging myself and in talking about myself. I don't normally do that. But that's why I liked it. When okay. do you get to do that? Right. But in my heart, that first episode with you and Chris will never be replaced. Well, the thing is that Chris so, glowed in that episode. It's just everything about that cannot be replaced. So, all right. We'll keep that. Chris yeah. was in it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Drew. Right. I really appreciate See you. you. All right. You too. <laughs> So that was Dr. Drew. And I have to say, I mean, it, it kind of broke my heart when he said that his favorite time he was on the show was with Chris. And I can't believe I had forgotten that at that moment. Yeah. So I felt like kind of like a jerk. 
Did I sound like I, a jerk? No, I didn't pick that up at all. And uh, I found that Dr. Drew was incredibly vulnerable and forthcoming. Yeah. It's, I've never seen him on television like that. And I love that he admitted that there's a lot. It's not easy being Dr. Drew. It's not easy being famous. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. <laughs> I struggle with it on a daily basis. <laughs> um, but uh, Dr. Drew, like I thought that he was honest and he was wholehearted. What What was your takeaway from it, Ryan? Well, you know what surprised me was he was several times during the show, like the most important thing that you were talking about was a specific person getting help. Meaning what? Like he was like, we need to help this person right now. And, you know, that's my job in life is to help this person. And when and like when he was young, he did he did something where he, he gave a patient opioids and he f still felt bad about that today that he handled that situation wrong. And somebody else stepped in and like fixed the problem. So it's like you really believed him that you believe like he cared. I believed him that that's like seemed like that's what he wanted to talk to you about was helping people. Well, I think he, it's a real calling. You know, I mean, I have a calling to make the greatest podcast on drugs addiction dumb shit. Yeah, and he, he talked about his early career, like he wanted to be a, a heart uh, doctor. Did he say that? Cardiologist? I don't know what the fuck I was Some, listening or, to. He wanted, he was going to go into another uh, field and then he switched. And So you've taken, you got nothing from this doctor Drew talking. What? I just told you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I... Uh, he talked about like, say if you... He said something about COVID and the whole world got crazy and like he had death threats and stuff. Well, I think that he, uh, it, I personally got so much out of uh, talking to him. I found that he was like fucking super, super, super vulnerable. Yeah. I got a. Uh, and he was just trying to help with COVID. He's like, how can I help this situation that's in the news? I just, I read about this professor at Stanford University who's like a super well-known guy. He has a Wikipedia page. And during COVID, he said, uh, and he was an epidemiologist. He had a PhD. He was also a PhD in economics and medicine. Super smart guy. And he's like, this is, we've never treated an epidemic like this. We should take care of the people that are vulnerable, but we shouldn't shut down the world. And he got like, basically ended his job. We lived through something that was very unusual, and now the fallout is really coming down. You know, like, there's a lot of, like, real crazy conspiracy theorists yeah. running around. and it's There's a lot of crazy armchair stuff. Armchair quarterbacks. I, I just say, everybody, do your best out there. And I also want to say that I love making the show. I love doing just about every aspect of the show. One thing that we don't talk about too much is recovery. And if you're struggling out there and you're trying to be in recovery or you're relapsing or whatever, please reach out to somebody. Go to the dopey Zoom. Go to the go go somewhere. It's it's going to be a meeting, but not as stuffy as some meetings can be. Right. I'm going to read this email we got from this woman named Emma. Okay. Okay. Uh, hey Dave, I've been listening to the show since right after Chris passed away. Your show has been a huge part of my recovery. Before I got sober, it was a shining light that there just might be a way out of this hell. And after I got sober two years ago, it's become something even more meaningful. Listening to stories about addicts who are beautiful, complex people who create art and community is so awesome. And now for a little Dopey story. I was trying to remember how I came across Dopey in the first place, and I remember uh, Bob Forrest told me about it. But let me back, back up. 
One Thanksgiving in San Francisco, I was hosting a dinner with my very much not an addict friend for all the people that didn't go to family for the holiday. I am, of course, drunk by 10.30 a.m. trying to roast a 25-pound bird and telling everyone that I did not need help. Everyone showed up for dinner. The bird was somehow cooked, I think. One of my friends who I normally did coke with was there uh, with her boyfriend and had decided that she, in fact, didn't want to do coke on Thanksgiving, which I, of course, thought was pretty lame. After trying to convince multiple, multiple people that getting coke before dessert was a fun idea, I called the guy, and he didn't want to deliver on Thanksgiving. <laughs> I was pissed right up until my friend looked over and said, Hey, I have some liquid acid if you <laughs> want to do that. And I said, Yeah, duh, why not? Anything to leave reality. I don't remember too much of the trip because I was pretty drunk, but I was told I laughed and gave the other host the middle finger multiple times. Anywho, I think me and the guy I did acid with went back to my house and looked at the stars and listened to music. What I do know is my sister was staying with me at about 7 in the morning the next morning with this weird clarity only an acid come down can give. I told her something was wrong and I think I have a problem. She didn't know what to do but said I should probably talk to someone. Well, I had seen Bob's number on Instagram, so I called him up and he picked, he picked up early uh, in the morning after Thanksgiving. We talked for a while. It was the first time I was really honest that something was wrong. And at the end of the call, he mentioned Dopey. I didn't get sober then, but it was the start of the road for me. I have two years now. I love meetings, but sometimes nothing is better than a dopey episode for my recovery and a laugh. Thanks for all you do. Forgive any weird spelling as I'm wildly dyslexic. Um, isn't that nice? That's a wild Thanksgiving. It's also interesting because years ago, Bob isn't on social media anymore, mm -hmm. but I remember years ago he had a Thanksgiving meme that's like it shows a 50s housewife holding a giant turkey like on a platter and it says uh we covered the turkey with liquid lsd just to see who has their shit together and every that's, that's ev so funny every year since then i post it for thanksgiving yeah, i've seen it so like the fact that like she did it in real life she did it and she called bob yeah it's that's weird wild. i know you know my memory is shot but i have this really strong memory of texting you from the train and say, are you still going to those 12 step meetings? And then also of uh, uh, walking with John and I was drunk and I was like, can you help me? So like I've really clear memory of like my two asking for help stories. It's interesting. It's interesting the things we remember and the things we don't remember, but I appreciate that email, Emma. Um, I appreciate the gay grape story, <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grapes or Grapes of Wrath or whatever. Dr. Drew, lighting it up. Ray Brown, thank you for coming back. Hello, hello. Is there anything you want to uh, push your music on people? How can we push your music? You can find me at Ray Brown on Spotify. And I'm going to be playing, the opening song is, of course, the Ray Brown heroin song <laughs> and this Dopey Dopey podcast. And I'm going to be closing with uh, DopeyCon 2 and the Ray Brown Good So Bad. So that's a lot of Ray that's Brown. a lot of Ray Brown. On this episode. <laughs> Hello, Italy. <laughs> Hello. Uh, ciao. <laughs> ciao, Ben. I'm huge in Italy. <laughs> Giuseppe, we've been a friend of a year. It's years. me, Mario. It's a me, a Ray Brown. <laughs> the father of the G-folk. <laughs> I have a sex with a dwarf. <laughs> hey, how you liking me now? 
Anyway, stay strong, Dopey Nation, and a big fucking toodles for Chris. In a motel room in West Virginia, you told me about DopeyCon. Then we drove up to Quincy's house and the rest is history, oh, but history is unwritten. By the time I got to DopeyCon, there was a hundred people strong. They told me to wait in the game room and I was freaking out because I thought they were going to put me in rehab. And I thought, what the fuck have I signed up for? But then Cormac did the sound. The whole night opened up and revealed itself and everybody there just got it. When we sang good so bad, I almost cried. And the smallness, oh, cat weasel and cats is to hear tonight. I looked over at you, and the Iowa crew. And I said to Alan, It's a miracle Dave made it through, and that he was able from a kitchen table. On a sofa with Chris, oh, Nissan cilantro. Through the fish tank bubbles, the crickets in the yard. Laughing at the tales of coming down so hard. And I was coming down too. True love wasn't true. Can the world couldn't help So I turned to you All of you And hey Dave I've never licked the toilet seat I've never eaten a pubic hair My sponsor doesn't approve of any of this What the fuck I don't care Oh so Bless up for the bliss And fucking toodles for Chris Up there in heaven Looking down at all of this Pray for us all Cause this world can be scary And please God, please let Dave out of the deli This is how a church gets made This is how the bricks get laid This is how a fucking Toby Khan song gets played. I want to take a walk around the world. Wonder would it do me any good Until I get some money In my pocket Then I guess I'll just have to walk Around my neighborhood I wanna be good So bad 
desire's all I've ever had Oh yeah I wanna be good So bad, so bad Bad desire's all I've ever had I wanna take a ride up in the sky Watch those airplanes just pass me by I wanna see a Lear jetliner take a dive Just to show all of those people What it means to be alive And I wanna be good so bad so bad, bad desires all I've ever had. I wanna be good, so bad, so bad, yeah, yeah. Bad desires all I've ever had. Shadows getting smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand My shadows getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller And it's high noon where I stand Busted city far behind. I'll take the high road, however far it winds. Cause peace and love are very, 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 very hard to find. And I wanna be good, so bad, so bad, bad desires all I've ever had I want to be good so bad, so Suckers make me mad I wanna call my dad Yes, yeah, all I've ever had I wanna call my dad These suckers make me mad It's all I've ever had It's all I've ever had It's all I've ever had